The following is a conversation with Walt Bogdanich. He's an investigative journalist for the New York Times, author of very many books, and as well, a three-time recipient of the Pulitzer Prize. It is by an unbelievable quirk of the universe that he appears on the podcast with me here today. Walt co-authored a book titled When McKinsey Comes to Town, which documents 14 different examples of McKinsey poisoning, muddying, and consulting the waters of big industry, big government, and even bigger money. You can expect to hear in this podcast, Walt speak about McKinsey in Saudi Arabia, McKinsey and Purdue Pharma, who are the pharmaceutical company behind the opioid crisis in America, McKinsey's absurd conflicts of interests. You can hear Walt explain why he thinks McKinsey could actually be more powerful than the CIA and more. This chat is separated into two distinct chapters, I would say. The first is consultants, McKinsey, skin in the game. And then the second is investigative journalism, advice to young aspiring investigative journalists, Pulitzer Prize stories, serendipity, and some of the classic questions that you've come to expect. So this podcast took me about five hours to put together, but will only take you five seconds to review. So swipe up their maps right now and pump that good juice into the algorithm, create momentum in the direction of all the algorithms and that is in the form of five stars because indexability searchability discoverability it's all fucked on these podcast algorithms and the one god metric is reviews so contribute to those and with absolutely no further ado here is the great walt bogdanich walt what sort of doors open up because of three pulitzer prize wins not enough I could say, uh, but but more than than uh, if I had none, and uh, it's not like I don't appreciate it. Uh, they do. It does mean a lot, specifically in terms of credibility. Um, when people don't know you, and you're asking them to reveal secrets and things that otherwise they might un- be uncomfortable doing, the fact you're talking to somebody who's apparently respected enough in the field to win three Pulitzers, or I should say lucky enough to win three Pulitzers, because <laughs> there is that element of luck, uh, at which I do acknowledge. Uh, on the other hand, I thought we did some pretty good work. So yes, it helps a lot. Yeah. Can you give us some examples or maybe just one example that stands out of how it made a tangible difference in opening a door or yeah, a sense of credibility? Well, I, you know, it's, I've never began a conversation saying, look, you need to talk to me. By the way, I won three Pulitzer Prizes. Um, (laughs) I don't don't think you'd get very far that way. I just think, you know, I I can't point to any specific story. I do know that, you know, someone who is going to be interviewed by by me or received a call from me, one of the first things they do is they look at my bio. And in this Mm -hmm. day and age, it's very easy to do and the three Pulitzers pop up. So that can only help. Could also make you fearful, you know, if you've got something to hide, I suppose. Okay, well, that's a, that's a nice segue. I mean, did, was that the case here with uh, when McKinsey comes to town? Well, I think it helped. Um, I mean, it's not just the Pulitzers, but I'm working for, you know, what I would consider hmm. and most people would consider uh, the best news organization in the world. So that also helps. And we mm-hmm. had done a number of stories on McKinsey before launching into the book. Um, and it was, it was a, a, at, at times a hard sell because not that many, not much is known on McKinsey. And editors, before they commit a lot of resources, 
they, they, they want to be kind of certain of a sure thing. Mm. And there was no sure thing when you're investigating or proposing an investigation of uh, this super secretive you know, company that never discloses what it does and has uh, tentacles that reach all sorts of places that you kind of wish they didn't. And right, so right. Uh, I think there was a reluctance to engage with me on that. Despite my track record, and look, I was, I was upset about it a little bit, but there were other big stories my unit was working on, the, the you know, sexual assault, Harvey Weinstein stuff. And so that, that's big, and they had a lot of people working on that. So getting an editor's attention is not always the easiest thing to do. But I've known that throughout my career, and I, I, can, I can sort of, you know, jump up and down and make myself known and heard. So I have some <laughs> skill in that area. Well, you're, uh, you're teeing me up perfectly. Slimy was your own words, but help me make sense of this statement. Forget secret cabals, the Illuminati, lizard people, or globalists, because instead there is McKinsey. Oh, gosh, I love that quote. It's from somebody who I've gotten to know quite well, and initially it was anonymous. And, and we talked him into going uh, on the record in the sense of using it by his name. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I just love that quote. <laughs> uh, because you know, those in the know, um, and there aren't many in the know, and that's why we did the book, uh, realize the reach and power and influence of McKinsey. And, and, and that's what makes that quote ring true to people who know about the company and know about its work. Um, so yes, <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. Well, I mean, help us make sense of that then. Explain the reach and power of this organization. Sure. Um, well, it, it uh, has advised the great majority of the Fortune 500 companies. Um, and it advises companies around the world. Now, these days, multinational corporations are everywhere. And, and McKinsey has its fingers in all of those, or most of them. Um, but what I think really kind of adds to their influence is, is they, they consult for governments around the world. They consult for government agencies. Uh, they take over the business of government. Um, they take over the business of people who have been elected to do a job and decide that it's a lot easier just to pay somebody to do the job. Uh, and, and then you don't have the responsibility if things go south. If you have, things don't go right, you can say, well, you know, all we did is recommend something. Uh, you know, we don't execute th th these policies. So, yeah, I mean, you know, so they're, they're, they're everywhere. And, and they're, I, I don't know of a more secretive organization in, in, in the world, uh, Truly. including our central, uh, our CIA, because <laughs> uh, CIA doesn't know all the secrets that McKinsey has. Uh, with all the corporate people and corporate executives and what they're doing, and so, yeah, that that that's that's you know part of why why we decided to do the story, and and you know part of the reason why we needed to think twice about tackling this because they are so secretive. Surely you're embellishing their um, I don't know uh, influence if you're saying they're even more secretive than the CIA. They know even more secrets. Than the CIA, prove me otherwise. You know, yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Well, then perhaps bring to the top of your mind for you 
this like archetypal, most egregious example of how McKinsey is exactly what you just said it is? Well, I think the, the best way to kind of dig in and look at it um, is through its concept of conflicts of interest, which basically in their view never exists. In fact, I can't imagine them coming up with an idea, well, this is a conflict of interest, we can't do this. Now they don't think that way. They think, oh, well, we could get money out of multiple pockets, reach into all these and pull the money out and, and, and nobody's the worse for it. Well, yes, they, people are the worse for it. And, and, and in the United States, they, they, they advise um, all of the major drug companies in the world all of them, almost all of them. I, I, I guess a few probably slipped through the net, you know, that they didn't get. Um, and at the same time, they advise the most influential, consequential regulatory agency overseeing healthcare, the Food and Drug Administration. And they don't seem to have a problem with that. Mm. While simultaneously having multiple pharmaceutical companies on the books. Yes, all of them. And, and frankly, their <laughs> healthcare field businesses is one of the most lucrative. It's not just, it's not just the, the, the pharmaceutical companies. It's the drug distributors. It's the hospitals. It's the doctors groups. It's the, the, you know, the managed care organizations. They have checked all the boxes and, um, and, and are very proud of it. Although they don't stand up on a soapbox and say, hey, look at us, you know, we've got all this influence. And I mean, they don't want, they want the right people to know that. Mm. But when people like me come along and ask them about <laughs> it, they're not interested in talking about it. And when we file our, our lawful freedom of information requests, they often come back, you know, redacted large, large parts of it, or we can't tell you who who the, the senior partner is who oversaw this. It's sort of none of your business. Well, it is my business and it's the public's business. And, and there has to be accountability when you have that concentration of power. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and there isn't any. And I guess ultimately that's the value in doing a book like this. Is this a phenom phenomenon um, explicit? No, unique to McKinsey. Or does this same conflict of interest, lack of skin in the game, money is really the uh, highest value of all overall culture, also applicable to the Deloitte, Bain, BCG, Accenture, all the rest? Or is there something particularly pernicious about McKinsey? We never investigated the other um, competitors in the consulting field. Um, they have their own, you know, dark secrets and embarrassments, um, you know, and McKinsey off the record will say, well, why, why are you looking at us? Why don't you look at the other ones? Um, and I said, well, because you said you're the biggest and the best, and therefore we want to look at the biggest and the best. Uh, sure. Do they have the kinds of conflicts of interest that McKinsey has? I don't know. Um, I think McKinsey is sort of the, uh, they're the, the ones who kind of perfected that. And I mean, I, I think they could very well. I just, I don't know because I haven't looked at right. it. Right. There's a terrific book that um, almost does exactly what you did, you know, because each chapter is a different sort of case of McKinsey's tentacles wrapping around some public issue. Um, but 
BCG and their influence on the Karolinska uh, Hospital here in Stockholm, uh, which is, I think, the hospital that gives out the Nobel Prize for Medicine. But as well, it's just, you know, Sweden's biggest public hospital. All the researchers uh, operate there. Anyway, this book is an investigation into the egregious inefficiency and graft that BCG pulled on the Swedish taxpayer. Well, I, it's a book I think I'd like to read. 100%. Um, yeah. I would uh, recognize the tune uh, because he's <laughs> been singing it for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know about that. Um, there are a lot of things I don't know. Um, um, a lot of times, hopefully enough years so I know more. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of, uh, uh, they have such extraordinary influence in, in healthcare. And when people say, why are you looking at McKinsey? Why aren't you looking at something else? Well, because healthcare affects all of us. And it's a black box, at least in this country it is. Um, and when they went over to, to the UK and decided that, you know, with the changing political winds, they're gonna start to privatize uh, the National Health Service, um, you know, that, that got a lot of people's attention, but it was sort of done quietly and uh, and it's something we thought we needed to to report so yeah they're um, they're worth worth watching very carefully in the healthcare mm -hmm. space Nisim Taleb is that an author that you're familiar with um he wrote black swan full by randomness skin of the game anti fragile no i i, I I'm, I'm not Oh, really? Interesting. Okay, well... I can act like the, I am. So let's... Sure, no. Like I, I mean... I, of I'm, course, I'm, I read it two days ago, but, you know... No, I don't want you to pretend like you know what it is, but I'm just saying that um, this fella, Nassim, he writes in Skin of the Game, which is a very, you know, popular, well-read book, um, that consultants are almost this archetypal example of an occupation with no skin in the game. And your book, in my eyes, certainly reinforces this case, but how do you see it? Well, it, it, it put it better than I could. Uh, yes, I, I, I agree with that. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, a lot of times they do have skin in the game. I mean, they're getting a lot for of money. Example? For example? Well, I mean, here's the thing about McKinsey. Uh, um, you know, when they make billions of dollars in profits, you know, that's one thing for a car company. They have to put up a lot of money to make cars. They gotta buy the, the, the raw ingredients. They gotta buy the, the materials that are used to, to build whatever they're gonna build. McKinsey doesn't do any of that. They just sell their ideas. And, and, and they're based on, you, you gotta believe me because we're the best because we're telling you the we're the best. And, and you know, you're dumb if you don't believe it. Uh, and, and why would all these you, you know, countries and corporations hire us if we weren't the best and um, and they have done some good things. I mean, I I should say up front that I mean, they're not the personification of evil. I mean, there are a lot of good people who work at McKinsey who I've gotten to know and are the type that I would like to be friends with and actually have become friends with. So um, it's a question of, uh, you know, how did this entity that really could have made a lot of money uh, in, in a more forthright open, transparent way, why did they take this course? And, um, and I guess I, I can't answer that definitively, but I can say historically, 
they followed the pattern, unfortunately, that a lot of corporations do, that they're gonna just want more and more and more. And, and mm. that's what they did. And we want more clients, we want more money. Um, and, and our senior you know, partners are making more than a million dollars a year and, and we gotta feed, uh, feed the beast. And mm. so um, there's no sense of enough is enough. Mm. So like a combination of greed, but then also just the inherent need for growth in an organization, perhaps skewed the morale somewhere along the way. Yeah, the morale got lost uh, in, in, the, in the, the cash register or something. Um, I mean, yeah, I, so yeah, I, but I, 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 go ahead. The, um, the example that Taleb presents of this consultant being the archetype of no skin in the game is that they will be hired to consult on a job that they actually have zero long-term interest in its outcome. Therefore, how invested can they be in the proposal itself? And I think that is just, you know, a bit of a throwaway caricature of consultants in general. They're fancy PowerPoint presentations so a company can get a tick of approval to do what it wanted to do anyway. Oh, that's very perceptive. I agree with it 100%. Um, I can cite two cases in particular. In fact, I could read one a short section of, uh, that I, I it, it was from a, a, a regulator, a, a new, um, utility regulator in the United States. To your point, um, he said, quote, I'll never forget when a young punk from McKinsey came into my office at the New York Public Service Commission and enthusiastically explained how they were right-sizing one of the state's utilities that was in financial trouble. I said, you mean lay people off? He responded that they were not laying people off, but right-sizing. I told him, I hope he had the pleasure of being right-sized. <laughs> Bottom line, <laughs> these morons right-sized linesmen with institutional memory, like where the lines really were, and the utility had to, utility had to hire them back as consultants. Now, I mean I, that's also a quote I love. Um, but to buttress that with another example, I just finished reading a, a Pulitzer-winning biography. I, I was late in doing this of, of Catherine Graham, who was the owner of the Washington Post. And there's a snippet towards the end where she says, "Like you know we." We're, we're, we're a public company now, we're trying to grow and what's the best way to go? And, and people re recommended McKinsey, so we brought them in and over and over and over again, they interviewed us over and it went forever. And, and, and then what they produced was, was ba they basically regurgitated what we told them with a few different words. <laughs> and that's the McKinsey model. And so you have people <laughs> who don't know the industry and they come in there and they give them advice and they use words that make it sound like they're really, really smart and in the know and they're using the fashion of the moment, you know, you know referring to that. And, 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 you know, I mean, people, people buy it. Uh, Washington Post got rid of them and um, hopefully the New York Times did, but, you know, I'm not on the business side. Um, but anyhow, that's... Uh, <laughs> It'd be uh, pretty remarkable if the same organization that published, well, didn't publish, but at least employs someone who published one of the most public attacks against McKinsey of all time was also a client of McKinsey. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, you know, they, 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 they were 
They, uh, yeah. they did advise the New York Times for many years. So I know you can't reveal this, but it's, uh, I'd love to hear you talk about the big breaking news of the book, but you got access to the McKinsey client list, which historically no one knew about. Yeah, I mean, that was a big breakthrough. Um, no one had it, we had it, and we knew how much they were being paid. Uh, it may not have been totally, um, compre- there, there may be some that weren't in there, and I suspect there were, but this was a, an exhaustive list. And I think what it revealed most to us, beyond the extraordinary amount of money that corporations are willing to pay um, these young MBAs, um, uh, it, beyond that, it revealed the conflicts of interest that are central to McKinsey's kind of um, operating model. Um, so th- that 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 was important, and yeah, it was a big breakthrough, and we're excited about it. And and that's about as far as I could go in telling you about about <laughs> how we got it. But we got it, and uh, it was a, yeah. it was. But I should also say that I mean you know. It was more than that, and and uh, every everybody who works at McKinsey signs a non-disclosure agreement, and the mm. day they walk in the door for the first time, that's impressed upon them over and over again. You do not disclose client names. You don't disclose what you tell them. You don't disclose what they pay us, and most of the people really buy that, and they won't talk about it. And we've talked. And when we started working on this, there'd be people who had left the company. 20 years ago, they said, oh, I don't know, I can't talk about it, you know. Well, when you're persistent, and we were persistent over the years, we eventually got nearly 100 current and former McKinsey people to talk to us, Mm. which is extraordinary and something we're very proud of, which shows this was hard work. It wasn't just somebody dropping some names and numbers in our lap. We worked hard to to make Mm. our case and to explain to the public what these people are all about. Hmm. Is there legal limitations for you, say, just publishing that list in a blog post? <laughs> people have asked us that. Um, uh, no, I don't think there's any legal um, limitation and or restriction in doing that. Um, but we did. I mean, we did cite a number of them that we got from uh, from that list. Um, I guess my fear is that um, it, it may not be as comprehensive. There may be some we're leaving out, um, and I didn't see the point of it. I mean, we're not we're not running a fo- printing a phone book here. We, we, our job was to take the important information from that list and make sense of it so that readers and the public can reach their own conclusions about this, this company called McKinsey. And I think that's far more valuable than you know, running a, a list of, of all, the, all the companies and their client lists. So you kind of alluded earlier to the conflict of interest, but could you give a sense for the significance of you uncovering this list and then what you learned from it? The significance there are many examples I could give. We don't have time to go through them all, but one of them, uh, I think the most important one, is it helps explain um, their involvement in, in the most shameful aspect of, the, of, of its history. And that was actively 
promoting the sale of opioids uh, through OxyContin at a time when they knew and the world knew that they, this drug was being abused and that tens of thousands of people were dying. And that apparently didn't bother the McKinsey people who were advising Purdue Pharma. So you have to ask yourself, well, why would they do that? Well, okay, Purdue Pharma paid them a lot of money. They're the makers of OxyContin. Yeah, okay, I can understand that. Greed is part of it, you know. But what's also interesting is that at that same time, they were advising the Food and Drug Administration. And that is not something, as a, a parent or a son or a daughter or somebody who was witnessing this carnage from, from opioids, would feel very comfortable in, 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 in seeing and knowing. And that's why I think one of the most important things that, that we are able to take out of that list, it helped explain beyond just simple greed, um, you know, what was going on in, 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 uh, at that company. Could you explain a little bit more the opioids example? how they sort of incentivized the doctors to prescribe it more and work McKinsey's role in all of that. Yeah, it was becoming fairly well known in the early 1900s, 1990s. Um, <laughs> uh, what am I talking about? Um, that, that, well, forget the dates right now. Um, right, right. By the time McKinsey took them on as a client, um, Purdue Pharma, was already uh, in trouble in the sense that um, prosecutors and health care officials were noticing that there were things happening uh, about how they were promoting this drug as, as basically safe. And, and it wasn't. And they were promoting it. It's, you know, it'll make your life you know, better. You can live more fulfilling existence if you take this drug. You won't be you know, battered by pain. Um, you know, uh, th there's a stigma about taking uh, um, an opioid. There shouldn't be, you know, as long as it's taken properly and you've got a good drug. And, and that's what, you know, people have to take, be able to treat pain. And, it's, 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 and that was their logic. And that's how they got doctors to sign on. And look, I, I, it sounds right. I mean, I've been in pain and I, nobody wants it. And, and, and what OxyContin did was it, it, it offered uh, continuous pain relief so that you could sleep through the night and you didn't have to take it every four hours. And so that's really kind of how it took off. But it was sold to doctors as something that, um, and to the patients um, through the doctors, um, as something that uh, it's time society recognized that pain needed to be treated aggressively. and. There's a, a nugget of truth there. The question is, you know, it has to be done responsibly. And it was not done responsibly. And McKinsey was, was advising them along the way. And as far as we know, at no time did they say, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, you should be stepping back. You should be uh, warning doctors through the, the advancement, they, they call them detail men over here, the, the people who who sell the, the drug to the doctors come from the, the pharmaceutical company, they should be presenting a more nuanced, the more full um, uh, appraisal of what this drug is and its, and its dangers. 
and and they weren't doing that. And McKinsey wasn't telling them, "Hey guys, you better step up, um, and you're part of of the human race, and and you don't want this on your conscience." Well, apparently, it didn't bother a lot of people. It, mm. And you know, the thing is, look, I, I, they also they were also advising the tobacco industry. Um, which is the most lethal product and in, in, in consumer product in American history and probably the world, you know, it kills millions of people. McKinsey was helping them sell more cigarettes. And I know in Europe, cigarette smoking is a little more popular than it is now in the United States, but they, they pushed it and they pushed it hard and apparently had no problem with that. And, and um, they made addiction, selling addictive products, a profit center. And mm -hmm. that was something that the public needed to know and did not know, and we did our best to tell them. For me, there is something more pernicious about the opioid um, shilling versus the cigarettes because, I mean, it's widely sort of understood that if you're smoking, you're taking a giant risk, um, and therefore it's easy to make the calculation in your head whether it's worth it, you know, at a nice night after a couple of drinks, sure, I'll indulge, right? But there's something extremely evil about the idea of incentivizing a doctor to prescribe something that they know is extremely addictive without the patient being fully informed, like fully understanding the risks that we're getting into. I hear you. Um, uh, and people have said that to me as well. Um, McKinsey and McKinsey people, they don't hire stupid people. And, and here's, here's to your, your, your point about cigarettes. And I, I worked hard to undercut that belief that this is, you know, a matter of choice, freedom of choice. If I want to smoke, knowing full well the dangers, then let me do it, you know. Well, the fact is, and I did this when I was in, in the television, when I was a producer for television, that you know, a lot of times people don't have that choice. They think they they have a choice, but these cigarettes were designed with a, with a, for the purpose of of sustaining, creating, sustaining addiction. So that takes away the argument of freedom of choice, and and we exp we reported that, and and over the years, the you know members of Congress, our legislatures, that they made points of that, and and frankly, a federal judge came out and said. You know, and told uh, told the world when they convicted him on this racketeer influence corrupt organization law uh, that they had been lying for fifty years, and they knew they were lying. The people who were telling these lies knew. So, you know, again, McKinsey people—they're smart. They want the smartest. They knew what they were doing. They knew the dangers of this cigarette. And I don't think until we reported, you know, a couple decades ago, that this really wasn't a matter of choice anymore because they, these cigarettes were designed to, to sustain addiction. Um, mm. Now with opioids, yes, uh, the counter to what you just said is that there is a, a, a role for opioids in, in, in the treatment of pain. So it's not like there's no value, whereas I would argue and maybe I'm, out, out, I'm not by myself on this thing. I would argue that there is no value in cigarettes. 
you know, none, none. I mean, and they're addictive and you could smoke after a, a meal or after a glass of wine or something. And yeah, you think that's okay. And eventually you're smoking more and not everybody gets addicted, but enough of them do. And it still kills millions a year. So, so there is no real discernible value and, and medically uh, of smoking cigarettes. And there is of opioids. So, so, you know, I just want to make that point, but um, again, this is this is like uh, an explosive device, opioids. And if you don't don't treat it that way, um, then then you know you're going to blow yourself up. And 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 that's what was happening because they were with McKinsey's advice. They were saying, well, you should target the doctors that that you know aren't prescribing enough of this, or target the doc, doc, doctors that are prescribing enough and get them to prescribe more and target the doctors that are prescribing only like 40 milligrams, let's get them to, a, to, to you know, 120 milligrams or whatever. Uh, I forget the, the, the titration there. But I mean, so, you know, they were they were they were actively making the situation worse than it would have been. And the doctors as well surely need to um, take a lot of responsibility by actively subscribing without informing that, hey, if I give you this drug over this drug, I'm going to take home $10,000 in cash in commission, you know, like what, what business do doctors have incentivized by commission? Um, well, I mean, it shouldn't be that way. Um, it is. Um, uh, uh, doctors obviously make, you know, I mean, they, they I mean, were... That's why they make so much more than European doctors. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, and we have this goofy system that makes no sense to anybody, but is so um, baked into um, sort of uh, American psyche that you want doctors to be able to do whatever the heck they want. I don't want doctors to do whatever they want, because sometimes when do, they do whatever they want, they end up prescribing with opioids. I should point out also that some of the doctors, you know, they're busy and they're kind of overwhelmed and they listen to what these drug salesmen tell them and they may not have realized some many possibly probably how dangerous this was mm-hmm. because they were saying that you know tests have shown that it's really not addictive you know if it done properly and well there was enough evidence out there for them to raise questions but you know, McKinsey was—I mean, not McKinsey, but uh, Purdue Pharma, the opioid manufacturer, was buying off doctors. They were sending them to all these warm weather resorts, and you know, it, giving them a reason to keep prescribing this drug and and keep being ignorant. And and ignorant ignorance was bliss when it came to uh, Purdue Pharma, and frankly, for McKinsey. So we've been alluding to the shame and the tentacles of McKinsey throughout the chat. That was a very, you know, great tangible example of Purdue Pharma and the um, incentivized prescription of, uh, of uh, Oxycontin. Um, and the book is structured as 14 examples of how McKinsey came in and the only thing that mattered was how many hours can we bill this client? irrespective of the consequence, irrespective of where that took them. Anyway, a chapter that I probably liked the most was the one about Saudi Arabia, just because it's attached to this amazing character of MBS and 
the impossible ambition that he has with the giant wallets that he's got. It's like, uh, you know, a McKinsey, it's a, it's a consultant's wet dream. Here we go. <laughs> Vulnerable guy, shitloads of money, crazy ambition. Anyway, so I wanted you to please speak with detail about McKinsey's role in Saudi Arabia. Well, I, I've been interested in Saudi Arabia for a long time for the reasons that you mentioned, uh, including um, how American um, arms manufacturers supplied the weapons uh, to, the, the, to the Saudis to bomb school buses and, and all the other hospitals and everything during the Yemen war which continue. So, I mean, I knew about Saudi Arabia and I knew about their ethics. Um, and I know about their society and how they treat women and how they treat any kind of op, you know, opposition. Uh, so, yeah, we were interested in, in what they were doing over there. And, 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 you know, that is not an easy thing to do. Um, they had some contracts, but I think it really broke open when they bought a Saudi-based uh, consulting company which had access to a lot of the, you know, the branches of the royal families. And so they, one of the things they did, and McKinsey will say that this study was not meant to be outside, you know, the firm. It was, it was like, almost like a practice uh, to study the, um, the dissidents on, on social media. And, and who they were and what prompted their, their, their being upset. And they said, well, this wasn't for the Saudi government. Um, and we're not, and it was never intended to be outside the doors of, of, of McKinsey. Well, it got outside the doors of McKinsey, uh, predictably. And, and we saw it, and others saw it. And, and, you know, the Saudi government, MBS, as, she, as, as she's demonstrated over and over again, um, doesn't want anybody disagreeing with them. And that's one of the most important things that we reported, um, that, that um, they had identified the dissidents and this got out and uh, was then put in the hands of, of, of Saudi you know, officials. Um, what exactly they did with that? Um, well, you know, we weren't over there. And Saudi, is, <laughs> Saudi operations are about as, as secretive as McKinsey. And so it was very hard for us <laughs> to find out what, you know, w you know what the, the consequences of that are. There was a lawsuit in Canada, um, and, and where allegations were made that you know there was retribution and, and attempts to, you know, punish and maybe kidnap people along the lines of you know, um, you know what they've done in the past. So, yeah, I mean that's. Yeah, I mean, I don't see how anybody with a conscience could do any work in that country. They stand for everything that we don't. And people should be outraged. I mean, you have MBS all slicked up now trying to look Western and saying, hey, look, we're going to let women drive, you know. Hey, how wonderful that is. Uh, uh, we're also going to chop 180 heads off in the public square because that's how we do business here. And, and you better know that you might be among them, you know. So I don't know why the United States government has any dealings with them. I knew when Trump was president why they had dealings with them because he wanted money out of it, you know. He, um, but, but so, yeah, I, I don't understand why McKinsey would work for him. 
they say that we're not doing anything for the, the ministries that are involved in, in war and, and internal uh, affairs, but uh, you know, take that at face value. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't know whether that's true or not. What about some of the details, specifically what they've done? I'm thinking Neom, this dream city of MBS, Tony Blair's role in everything. Yeah, Neom, that's 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 interesting. Um, well, to be honest, my partner, um, Michael Forsyth, that was his area of expertise. So uh, I can tell you my you know 30,000 foot view of it, but I, I don't know that that would be necessarily helpful to the people listening in or watching. What I know is what I just said, and um, and that for me is enough to to say, listen, um, this isn't uh, an outfit that we ought to be dealing with. And apparently, McKinsey people didn't have much of an issue with that. Mm. Um, nor did they have an issue uh, after um, after uh, Putin, you know, stole the Crimea from Ukraine. Um, and, and, and then, and then, as punishment, you know, Russian corporations were put under sanctions, and McKinsey continued to work for those companies. Um, now they they point out that we weren't violating the sanctions, um, and maybe technically they weren't, but they were working for these companies, and they had no problem with that, and they had no problem working for the totally corrupt um, former. Um, president of Ukraine, Yanukovych, who was later found to have been thieving, stealing tens of millions of dollars and was pro-Russian and claiming not to be. And when, when the people rose up to, in a revolt, he fled to Russia. And, <laughs> and, 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 and no skin in the game. <laughs> Putin took Crimea and, and we know what's been happening since then and, it, and it's not pretty. Uh, the, me bringing up the neom is just because I feel like these small details about specific characters that are kind of odd um, really stay with you for longer. You know, like, for instance, there's a detail about MBS in Bradley Herb's book, Blood and Oil. He co-authored it. I'm sorry, I forget the other author. Um, where MBS would play a, a Age of Empire as a boy you know, or he had to have every single pair of shoes that like were imported into Saudi Arabia, every type, you know, to be Western, to, to be, but he's playing Edge of Empire, he's playing computer games, he was exceptionally lazy. Anyway, these kind of details um, stand out for me for the profile of MBS. In your book, in the chapter of, of Saudi Arabia, details that stand out were say how McKinsey just being so slimy and opportunistic, they're like, hey, here's this guy who wants to build a fake moon in uh the desert desert. sure you know here bill for a thousand hours yeah we consulted all the engineers around the world and here is our here's our plan to build it for you it's going to cost you another ten thousand hours of our work um yeah you're in the middle of the desert why not it can be a totally automated city of course it can mbs you know that's just going to cost you ten thousand more sort of hours no i i hear hear what you say i i that flying cars all this kind of i mean it's like Disney fantasy, you know, um, except in Disney, it's a it's a theme park and it's 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 make believe this. Well, it's make believe over there, too, except that consultants are pulling in a whole lot of money. Uh, My view, I don't need to know anything more about MBS or the Saudis other than Khashoggi 
and what, what they did to him. And they chopped him up and, and, and hid it and lied about it. And MBS was behind it, as our intelligence uh, services concluded. I don't need to know anything more about why any Western organization should have nothing to do with that country. They will argue and have argued that if we're not over there, um, well, they'll be worse. <laughs> they'll get worse. Well, okay, I don't know how you could get worse. You could, could chop off more heads, I suppose. But, um, or you could have the women driving Tesla cars or something. And, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so I, beyond how they, they chopped up a journalist and lied about it, kind of tells me all I need to know about that country and MBS. Right. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. And I also definitely don't want to miss this opportunity to ask you about investigative journalism. So not specifically about the book. Uh, so I'd get into some of those questions. But I first, to round out the McKinsey chat, I want to leave the floor to you and you just explain for you the most archetypal egregious example of McKinsey that underlines the point of your book. I would say the um, the decision to turn selling addictive products into uh, a profit center um, when others wouldn't um, and never disclosing it. Um, look, I mean, this was you may they may as well have had a machine gun out there um, because you know people were dying by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands. And look, cigarettes. You know, it, it, after after they were, uh, they knew what was going on. And when you know what was going on, and, and Philip Morris says, you know, we want to sell more cigarettes. We want to we want to sell more Marlboro cigarettes. How do you do that? McKinsey talks about a, you know, a reward system. For more cigarettes you buy, you know, you're going to get like these special deals. Um, that was just a couple of years ago. I mean, what the hell were they doing? You know, I mean, who, you know, raised their hand and said, no, this is a bad, bad idea. It's not worth the money. It's not worth the money to be pushing opioids. It's not worth the money to be pushing vaping when it was unregulated and having young kids addicted to nicotine. I know a lot about nicotine and and uh, and I studied it and and um, and it's not a, a harmless drug. And I mean, <laughs> It, it, it can, it'll kill you in, two, in, in large doses and, and will addict you in smaller ones. And, and it, the cigarette industry knew exactly how to, how to reach the proper level. So, yes, that's my, that's my overarching um, uh, outrage, if you will, about what they did. No, and I, well, look, um, I, I do have a, another kind of important thought that goes to how they ended nice. up like they are. Um, and that is that um, it was built on a partnership model based on the founder of, of you know, of McKinsey worked at a, law, a Cleveland law firm. And when you have a partnership, I mean, that's, you know, you know the partners and, and, and they're, you know, oftentimes sitting next to you. And and that's fine for a small organization or even a medium-sized organization. But when you have a worldwide organization where you give extraordinary power to consultants um, to make decisions without any oversight, and that 
you know, I think was a, a, a root cause of a lot of these problems. They were happening in, in a way that because of the structure of the of the company, they were happening because the values of the company put the number one value. Uh, the client's interest always comes first. Well, what if that client's interest is to sell more opioids or cigarettes or whatever? Uh, well, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it with a smile on our face, and uh, and they did. Mm-hmm. So you teach investigative journalism. What is a really hard truth that you try to impress on your students about a career in investigative journalism? Um, that it's um, the best investigative reporting looks at the system. It doesn't try and find the bad apple. That's important to do. And there's a lot of people out there that are doing that who ha- cover a beat. But I'm much more interested in how the system um, it betrays us. And, um, and so my stories all try to take that into account. I don't want to look at just one hospital that's screwing people over or killing people. Um, I, I, I did a story, a series of stories about medical radiation, uh, which is a wonderful advancement where you, you can, you know, detect disease and, and when you find it, you can zap it um, with radiation. Well, Yes, um, that's a wonderful thing. And, and there were problems at one hospital, but I kept telling my, my editors, this is a bigger story. And, and it was a bigger story because how did this happen? And, and what the conclusions we came to is that there was this technology that was so sophisticated that there was trust put into this technology and, and you couldn't immediately look at it and say, well, here's a mistake or here's some, it was belief in technology, blind belief. And what happened is it ended up, you know, killing and harming people. And so that's an example of, of the kinds of stories I want to do. I don't, you know, go, I don't know. It, it's, it, it's the, the cliche. I don't want the bad apple. I want the barrel, you know? Um, <laughs> so that's what we sort of talk about. Nice. Um, on that theme of looking at the system rather than one bad example, your third Pulitzer Prize was for a toxic pipeline. Can you just give us the skinny, what the big story was here? Big story was that uh, there were all these substandard pharmaceutical ingredients that were coursing through the world system, um, going from country to country, and no one was stopping to look at it because it was mislabeled. I mean, there were people who were making money off selling what essential was poisoned. And the way oh, I discovered wow. that was, you know, I mean, people think investigative reporting, you got to have sources, you know, meet in garages at two in the morning and have them you know, <laughs> hand secret documents to you. No, I mean, I came up with this idea to launch this massive investigation by reading a story in our own newspaper that said that people were dying in Panama from poison and medicine. And they were saying it was an accident and there was a manufacturing mistake. And I'm thinking to myself, that makes no sense. I know how drugs are made. You don't have one barrel with poison in it and one barrel with with the pharmaceuticals in it. And then you kind of bump some of it and the poison goes into the other thing. That's not how it works. And I knew that that was BS and I wanted to go down there and find out what was going on. And what I found out was that there was this mislabeled, uh, these mislabeled drugs that were killing tens of, killing hundreds of people. And if you traced it back, it came to this, this uh, manufacturing plant in China. And mm-hmm. I had done a similar story 
years earlier where they were killing all these babies in, in Haiti. So I was familiar with the MO. I was familiar with, with this particular ingredient um, mm. that was in a lot of the, the things we had. I mean, I'm going on too long here, but... Uh, no, um, no, please. I mean, it was, in, it, was, it's, it was in toothpaste, and they were putting it in toothpaste. Jesus. And little kids, I mean, basically putting antifreeze in toothpaste is, mm. is, is sort of the summary of it, and people didn't realize that. And uh, little kids, you say, okay, well, it's not going to kill you. You brush your teeth. Well, I mean, when I was a kid, I liked the taste of it, and I used to swallow the toothpaste. Probably <laughs> oh, accounts no. for my misbehavior as a, as a grown-up. But um, so yes, I mean, and what and that led to just following these sort of substandard um, uh, supply chains around the world, and to mm. reveal that there was uh, there was no adequate system for ferreting out these you know, these hazardous yeah. uh, ingredients. For me, that story you just told is um, such a good example of the limitations of a free market because the real libertarians will say to you that, hey, um, eventually supply and demand will meet. And sure, the market might not demand something once, it's once you find out that there is antifreezing new toothpaste. But there is such a huge cost before people find out that it is such a limitation of it. You could just be the unlucky guy who has to fail for the rest of the world to understand that something's bad. And that's why I, I, I really enjoy this fact about Sweden that it's within European Union, which already has the highest standards for drugs and also food, but then Sweden has its own additionally high standards. And so you know when you go shopping in the supermarket, I can buy, and I do buy, the cheapest meat, the cheapest chicken. Um, and I know I'm not eating pure crap. The equivalent is probably super organic stuff in a US shelf. Yeah, I, well, I, I agree with you. I mean, um, mm -hmm. yes, that, that's that's a good point. Yeah. Um, what about, how'd you go about figuring out that incredibly complex supply chain, tracking down rogue ingredients back to China. That's, it was fun. Um, and investigative reporting should be fun. Uh, otherwise, it'll drive you mad because everybody's slamming doors in your face and everything. Well, it started, I went down there and they were trying to blame everybody. Uh, b blame this one person, did, did the, the lighting change for you here? My lamp went off. Do I, do I need to go to? It's okay. It's okay. All right. Um, well, no one had talked to this guy who was under who had been arrested. He was he was a dis, uh, a distributor. He was he was a guy who had received this and had given it to the Panamanians, and no one had talked to him. So I managed to and to get through to him because the authorities didn't want me to talk to him, um, and he said, "Well, look at these manifests." If you follow it through, they're saying that this is 100% pure. And it went through this country and through that country and through that country. And so it wasn't my fault. I, you know, I, 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 I was relying on what the last shipper said. So that was sort of the opening to me. And then uh, there was, I mean, the, the big breakthrough really was when I went to Milan for the International Conference of Pharmaceutical Ingredients. They were like... 25,000 people there. And this is not something reporters go to, believe me. And I went to it, I went with a camera crew. And, and what I did is I went from one Chinese, I mean, they all had booths. And 
I went from, and I knew that the Chinese Food and Drug Administration wasn't doing its job, and a lot of these weren't um, uh, inspected by the Chinese Food and Drug Administration. So I would go to each of these little booths, and I would say, tell me about your product. And I would say, is it inspected by the Food and Drug Administration? They said, no, no, it's not. And so then I would go to another one, and another one, and another one. And eventually, you know, I'm, I'm putting together this list, and it was obvious that there were giant loopholes. They were letting chemical companies get involved in pharmaceutical ingredients. And one thing led to another, and, and this wasn't my goal when I set out, but <laughs> the Chinese, as they're want to do at times, they decide, well, the solution is to execute the head of the Chinese <laughs> Food and Drug Administration. So that's what they did. And oh it wasn't like, God. okay, for the next award season, I'm going to say, well, I got the guy executed. Well, that's, that's not what I set out to do. And I felt sorry for the guy. He was probably doing what he was told. But yeah, yeah I mean, that's, you know, simple solutions um, are sometimes not enough. Mm. So... I very much romantically project onto this what you just said. It should be fun. And the idea of, you know, uncovering a very, very dirty secret for mass appeal. Um, you know, there's probably no more filthy supply chain in the world than cocaine. Um, and then as well, you know, sort of battery manufacturing. Um, um, <laughs> what about these? You know, um, give me some advice. How, how, how would I go about actually doing meaningful work in investigative journalism in the supply chain of one of these? Supply chain investigations are so incredibly important these days because um, as, as through outsourcing and um, matters like that, uh, all sorts of places um, exist where people can infect people with bad intentions, can, can sort of infect the system. Um, I just think, you know, it's old shoe leather. It's the old style. You, you, you talk to people. Where does this come from? You, you get records um, and, and, you, and you follow it backwards. Um, mm. And that's what I do. And that's what, uh, you know, it's hard work, but um, you'll be able to do it. All right, then. Hard work, bring it on. You know, I want to, I want to shoulder that burden. But what about finance? How does one go about in the freelance investigative journalism in the modern media environment. I mean, you're a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner. You can approach your uh, employer and say, hey, I've got a good lead here. And they'll just say, yeah, all true. right, Walt, you know, we'll fill your account. You go do what you need to do. Um, and rightly so. I mean, you earned that. But I mean, for myself and your students, people who might be freelance, how do you, how do you advise them on the finance aspect in the modern media environment? A good question. And I, I, I do not deny that um, I am privileged where I'm working and that it's a lot easier to call somebody and say I'm with the New York Times and, and if I need to jump on a plane to Panama the next day, I can do that and did do that. Um, but I, I, I also believe, I mean, I worked my way up and I worked at tiny papers that had no money to do investigations and I did them anyhow. Um, because if, if you ask enough questions and the telephone and other places you I mean there's a lot of information you can get on your own you know in your spare time that's what I did and if you keep doing that and building a case there will be organizations that will want to publish it and pay you money for it hmm. and and that's what I tell students D 
dig it, you don't have to be at the New York Times to come up with a great story, to, to prove wrongdoing, prove systemic harm. I mean, you can do it from wherever you are. And a lot of people said, they, 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 they said, well, it's, you know, papers have gotten smaller, budgets have gotten smaller. Yeah, that's true. But it comes down to the individual. Do you want it badly enough? If you do, you'll get it and you'll be able to sell it and you'll be able to make a, a, a living off of it. And that's what I tell them and that's what I truly believe. Amazing. All right, Walt, uh, just a few more for you. You've been extremely generous with your time. We'll do this quickly. Who are some of your investigative journalist heroes? Cy Hirsch, <laughs> because he's so unlike everybody else. Um, Go on, I'm afraid I, I, I've never heard of him, sorry. Cy Hirsch is the guy who uh, uncovered the My Lai massacre in, in Vietnam. Oh, wow. And he worked for the New York Times, and, and he's, a, you know, he's the antithesis of Bob Woodward from the, all the president's men. They sort of hate each other. And, and Cy Hirsch is a guy who just does what he, and he says what he believes. I, he was hugely, he, he won a Pulitzer's obviously, and he did a lot of great work on the Watergate scandal. He didn't get enough attention for it, but he, uh, and he did other kinds of like incredible work. Um, when I was sued by Philip Morris for $10 billion, a named defendant. Oh my God, um, God. stressful. And I was, <laughs> and I will, that's another story. I need another podcast <laughs> to tell that one. But um, I ended up not paying a penny, but it was clear that ABC News, which was intending to sell itself to Disney, was not that interested in representing the interests of the, um, the interests of the public um, in, in this regard. And Cy Hirsch was sort of watching from afar. And I never met the guy, I never spoke to him. Um, and one night I come home frustrated, worrying about what's gonna happen in this lawsuit, because Philip Morris had more money than God and they were willing to spend it. And their whole point was just to rattle us and get us to you know, surrender. And psych, I picked up the phone and the first words were, you're a fucking asshole if you don't hire your own lawyer. And I said, who is this? He said, Cy Hirsch. <laughs> I said, well, thanks, Cy. I think that's good advice. And so I hired his lawyer and, um, and I'm glad I did. Amazing. And uh, operating today, who, who's someone that stands out as an amazing investigative journalist? There's so many of them. I hate to slight. Yeah, true. Actually, it's an unfair question. I, 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 I uh, redact it. Please do. Um, yeah, because yes, I, I admire so many of them. You know, sure. and I've learned I, from I, them. Um, then, in that case, what is a great story not being told? Well, I'm putting together a list right now for my class in the spring. Because uh, I always try and find stories, great stories that haven't been told. Um, I think, you know, in my country, income inequality tops the list. And it's easy to say, well, there's all this hatred and division in this country because of Trump and people like that. And, and his followers who believe his lies and, and, and everything. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's true. But... Um, there's more to it than that. And, mm -hmm. and inequality is, is, is the father of, of Donald Trump. There's the father of, of, you know, in Hungary and in a lot of these places where there are, are you know, strong men rulers who seem not to re 
to care much for how the democratic system should work. And, and I think inequality and, you know, people who think, well, why do they have this? I don't have that. The system is rigged against me. Um, I think getting deep into the granular detail of that could help explain a lot of what's happening these days and, and, and make the world a better place. Amazing. That would be, um, it seems like at least, terribly complex story to tell. It, it, it is, uh, but and, you could bite off little, you don't have to eat the right, whole right, yeah. animal. You could, you could just <laughs> cut off a, yeah, yeah. a piece. Uh-huh. And it's all so politicized, that one particularly. You know, I think maybe you had a benefit, or sorry, I shouldn't say, but do you think you had a benefit potentially with, say, looking at the supply chain question or looking at McKinsey? You know, um, you're not getting at people's core politics in an explanation. I don't think you need to get into core politics. I think you have to get into the reasons for that. And, and you have to explain how people are exploited and how they're lied to. And that isn't political. That's just good, hard, you know, hard-nosed reporting. It's something we all should be doing, and we haven't been doing enough of. Um, so, yes, I mean, uh, it, certainly that was one of the reasons I did the McKinsey book, was because McKinsey was very cavalier about, well, you need to outsource these jobs. You can make more money that way. It's cheaper. You know, you, you can... Uh, it, it, it leads to, to harm, anger, um, when the financial collapse occurred here, nobody went to jail. And um, yeah, I, I mean, there were had to be huge crimes committed. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then some people the feel like, well, you know, history, history. I do some, some, you know, don't put, don't put my turn signal on and I get a ticket. I get charged. You know, these people commit the, mm. just this side of murder and get away with it. So mm. anyhow, no I wonder it builds resentment. Yeah, no, yeah it does. All right. Well, uh, three questions I try to ask every single guest. First, what is the role that serendipity has played in your life? I don't know quite how to answer that. Do you want to answer, use another word other than serendipity? No, I actually um, am specific about not saying luck. I am, I am well i don't I, I don't believe in luck i really don't um i believe i have i have a sixth sense when i spot something that it's going to turn into a story and that's the gift that i have um when people sit around and they talk about god i wish i had a source i don't have any story ideas i said open your eyes it's all around you um they're you know, after 9-11 here, there were signs put all over the, the, the city saying, if you see something, say something. Um, well, that's sort of my, my operating model. Um, if you see something that doesn't make sense, write about it, ask questions, instead of just walking by and, and looking at the flowers or the trees or, or whatever, thinking about what you're going to have for dinner at night. So uh, nothing on serendipity. An anecdote, perhaps. You know, maybe you, uh, you you ran into your wife on the bus and you weren't meant to catch that bus. Something like that. <laughs> well, yeah, I can. Yeah, I, I, since you mentioned my wife, I mean, you know, she. Uh, I met her at an investigative reporters and editors conference. 
And there I took is. a train to from Cleveland to Boston, and I sat next to just a really lovely young lady, and we hit it off. And she said, I'm not stopping in Boston. I'm going up the coast, and I'm playing piano with this club. I said, why don't you come up and see me? And I thought, hey, sounds like, <laughs> sounds like a good idea. <laughs> um, but And so I got off the train, and I said, I can go this way, or I can go that way. And I, I knew that I was going to be in, in, introduced by a friend to this, this woman who I admired from afar, a reporter. And so I went that way. I could have gone the other way, and I ended up mm. meeting her and being married for 40 years. Wow, beautiful. Uh, a country you're particularly bullish on. Sweden. Go on, go on. Because I'm not bullish on the United States. I love this country and I love what it stands for. But I don't see how I could be bullish when people in this country don't believe reporters what they say and what they report and the facts in front of them. So, I mean, I, I do think that there's, I do know some Swedish reporters and, and, I, and I think the world of them. And there's a lot of great work being done over there. Who? So, well, I'm not going to get into names again. Martin Schiebe. Well, there's, there's a number of them. Uh, so, yeah, that's an interesting, you know, observation. I, I wonder how much it is isolated to America, that idea of people not, under, not trusting what reporters are saying anymore. I can say in my own country, Australia, it feels uh, almost the same way truly uh that that like hard divide of where one half just is inexplicably making sense of the other um definitely less so here in sweden but yeah um anyway that is obviously a, a broader topic finally mr bognadich sorry walt a conversation between any two people of history dead or alive no language barrier so if you were to listen to a podcast lincoln Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he managed to untangle one of the most difficult uh, problems in American history. And there was a lot opposing him. And I just admired him since I was a little kid. My father admired him and made me read books about him. And I've read a lot of them. And I've just really come. <laughs> and I know he's not a, nice. a, he, he's not a perfect people will say, individual, but for his time, he was a giant and uh, represented what this country should be. Mm. And who's he talking to? Because it's, it's a podcast. podcast. You, <laughs> you. Me. lovely. Uh, okay, lovely. beautiful. Uh, okay, to you, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't give him up to somebody else. You know, <laughs> if I'm gonna have an opportunity to talk to him, I, cool, I would say, cool. you know, talk to somebody like Donald Trump, but he's not going to listen to him. No, but that wouldn't be interesting. You no, know, it, it wouldn't would, be more interesting, interesting would be, um, you know, Lincoln and just another amazing statesman. I, I can't think of a good example, but you, you know what you, I mean. You know, I know what you mean. Sense. Yes, yeah. I know what you mean. Anyway, look, um, thank you for going over time. Thank you for being so generous in your responses. And uh, thanks for the book. It was uh, a very engaging listen for me. I listened to it on audiobook. But thank you, sir. sir. 
Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Cheers, Walt. You absolute legend. It was a, a privilege, really a privilege to get to talk to you. And I think I only re- have realized now in a week or two weeks after speaking with you, just how lucky I was to get to occupy an hour of your time. To you, my very generous and dear listener, if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, then what I would do now is just quickly explain my ambition. And that is to corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities in whatever country it is that you're listening in from. Now, like I sort of said at the beginning, and also FYI, I say this generally at the end all the time, podcast uh, discoverability is shit. It is crap. And uh, the main reason is just because it doesn't, there isn't a sort of, um, there isn't an algorithmic function to the discoverability of podcasts except those lists. And the only way to get in those lists is either to be, I don't know, friends with the distributor, somehow a mainstream voice or whatever, or to get shitloads of reviews. So I'm going for the latter. Shitloads of reviews. Pump your good juice into the algorithm. Bring Spotify up to 100 before the end of the week. Bring Apple up to 1,000. That's all from me. I'll see you soon. Goodbye.